This morning we're in, uh, in Jonah. So I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 1. We'll look at 1 through 6. This is an extraordinarily familiar story to, to many, even, even outside the church. We hear about the, the whale, big fish, who, who swallowed Jonah. And there's a lot of, a lot of talk. Well, could that even be real? Well, we're going to treat it as it is because Jesus did. But we're not there yet in the story. Uh, but this morning, Jonah chapter 1, 1 through 6. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. <clears throat> this is the word of God. I need divine help to preach. We all need divine help here. So we're going to ask. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we know your word is living and active. And we know that it has a sanctifying and saving effect on people. Father, for those in the room who are not yet believing, I pray that it will save. For those who are already believing, I pray that it will sanctify. And ultimately, Father, uh, I know that my task in preaching is to proclaim Christ from the whole counsel of the Word of God. And I pray that you'll help me to do that in this this morning. So I'm asking for help. Help me, help us all. And may Christ be exalted in this place. And we ask it in his name. <clears throat> Amen. As a, uh, <clears throat> as a kid, confronted by my dad for not doing something I was supposed to do, like a lot of teenagers, my attempt to excuse my neglect began with, but dad. And my dad's immediate response, I do remember this, no buts. My attempt to offer an alternate view that assuages concern was usually rejected out of hand for what it was, uh, an excuse for laziness and, and neglect. But that little conjunction, but, it's used in language to introduce a, a, a phrase that contrasts with something already stated. And we see that word, that little conjunction in our text this morning. In fact, we see three specific contrasting phrases. And two of them really describe Jonah's actions, but the other describes the Lord's. And in each contrasting phrase, the conjunction reveals something kind of unexpected. And we're going to get to those in a moment. So those, those contrasting phrases reveal something that's a little bit unexpected. 
Those will be my headings this morning, these three contrasting phrases. But before we get there, I think we need a little background in this book. Again, as I said, I I know it's quite familiar, the story. Um, If you've read through all of the Minor Prophets, you will see that this one is quite different from the others. Uh, It's mostly a prophetic narrative. Rather than a, a series of oracles, other, other prophets are just, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, and it's some statement of judgment, call to repentance, what have you. But in this one, there is just a single oracle with a, a whole lot of narrative around it. Ultimately, we, we discover that God will, will accomplish his purpose in spite of Jonah's reluctance that we see here in the first chapter. So what can we know about this prophet Jonah? The book is, is, is actually anonymous, even though it's called Jonah. It, it doesn't indicate that it's been written by him. It may very well have been, but it could, could have been written by somebody else. But it's about Jonah. We know he's the son of Amittai. And the only thing that we know about him from Scripture, it comes from 2 Kings 14.25. And there we're told he hails from a town called Gath-Hefer. And that's really in the northern kingdom, in the, in the territory of Zebulun. And so what that does, because of that passage in, in Kings, that sets him uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II. That's approximately 790s BC. That's, that gives you a, a place in history for this. So this event, or, or the, the time about which uh, Jonah is writing is, or Jonah is being written about, is sometime before the northern kingdom, that divided kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom was ultimately conquered by the Assyrians. So it's before that time. Now, this may be significant later, uh, but not for today, but the name Jonah means dove, Amittai means truth. So there's just something about his names. Now, Nineveh, what's, what's the deal with Nineveh? Now, we're not here. We're told about it. We're not at Nineveh at this point in the, in the, in the narrative, but it's a city in Assyria. So that northern, king, uh, northern kingdom was ultimately uh, conquered by Assyria, uh, but that hasn't happened yet. But Nineveh is a city in Assyria. And in chapter 3, verse 3, we're told it's an exceedingly great city that it would take three days' journey in, in breadth. So if you're traveling, walking through, it's going to take you three days to get across it. It's probably the leading city, the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. And uh, uh, encyclopedias say it's, it's, it was said to be the largest city in the world at that time, before its destruction. It was ultimately destroyed in 612 BC. But at that point, it was probably the largest city in the world. Now from verse 2, here's where we get some descriptions of it, at least by the Lord. From verse 2, we discover that the evil there was so great that the Lord says, it has come up before me. So I take it that this isn't just regular evil. It's significant evil. It demands, it's the kind of evil that demands some kind of response from the Lord. And we get a sense of that in in earlier parts of scripture. The evil that came up before the Lord in Noah's generation that that ultimately brought judgment. The evil in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that came up before the Lord that ultimately resulted in their uh, judgment and destruction. So that's Nineveh. Great evil. And God's got something to say about it. Now, let's look at the text. 
And we'll get to our contrasting phrases here. First thing we see, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And as I said, it's a contrasting phrase. But Jonah fled. That's a summary of what happened. But Jonah fled. The word of the Lord came to him, but Jonah fled. To flee, to run. Well, of course, it's what you do to avoid something dangerous, right? You flee. There's also something you do when you find something loathsome. Something that turns your stomach. Something you just want nothing to do with. And I think in Jonah's case, it was certainly the latter. You know, from Genesis all the way through Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, the word of the Lord came to, I don't think there's a single occasion. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's a single occasion in all of the scripture where the prophet receiving that word did not immediately submit himself to the call to speak it. This is startling. And, I, and I, I said contrasting phrases. This is a surprise. But Jonah fled. Instead of going to Nineveh, he heads for Tarshish. Now scholars have concluded this is probably somewhere southwest Spain. So really it's on the other side of the world. It's, it's the furthest place that he can think to go away from Nineveh. Now, why did Jonah flee? And I think we can, we can infer some things from the text. We can also infer some things from history. Of course, Assyria was a longtime enemy of Israel. Now, we find the reason over in chapter 4, verse 2, one of the reasons given, I knew that you were a gracious God. That's his reason. I know that you're gracious. So somehow, Jonah has the sense that for Nineveh, whatever message he brings, it will be different for them than it would be for Sodom, which was destroyed. That when Jonah brings the word of the Lord to Nineveh, it will be different for Nineveh than it was for Noah's generation, who was ultimately destroyed by a flood. Somehow, he has the sense that this is different. I knew that you were a gracious God. So I, can, I think we can conclude here that Jonah's hatred for the Assyrians was so entrenched, so, so deeply bound into him that the last thing that he could stomach was them being recipients of God's mercy. So I think he hated the Assyrians. But he also fled because I take it, and this is theological, I think he had a small view of God. He's a prophet of the Lord, but he's got a small view of God. He thought that he could get away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3, he rose to flee to Tarshish. Why? It's stated twice there, from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. Now we're thinking people here, and if you know your Bible, do you really think that God would not find him in Tarshish? Now, We've got to rewind ourselves. This kind, of, this kind of thinking was certainly common among pagans. Their false gods were thought to be regional, right? You have your God of this nation and your God of that nation. And, and we can see in Scripture, even the, the pagan nations around the nation of Israel thought this about Israel's God. An example you see is 1 Kings 20, 20. The Syrians, not Assyrians, but the Syrians there falsely believed 
The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. In other words, they were going to change their battle strategy, and the Lord defeated them there too. But, but the point is that they thought, well, he doesn't know how to fight in the valley, so we'll, we'll fight them there. Of course, we see that, and we think, well, that's just silly. But their view of God was small. And I take it that in some sense, Jonah has parroted this kind of false understanding of the true and living God. Now, given what Jonah knows, you, you would think that's irrational. But is rebellion ever rational? What do the psalmists say? Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascended to heaven, you are there. If, my if I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you're there. The theological word for that, of course, is that God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. Maybe Jonah didn't think that God was omnipresent. Well, we see also in fleeing that he thought he could thwart God's plan. Now, of course, we're not told everything that Jonah is thinking. It's typical of narrative, right? We don't get an inside view to his mind and, and the logic he was using. But I think we can infer some things about his actions. Perhaps, and, and this is a way of thinking about it, perhaps in fleeing, Jonah thought that God would ultimately relent from bringing that message to the Ninevites. Well, I'm not going, so they're not going to hear. And maybe he thinks he's going to thwart God's plan. But at the very least, I think we can assume that Jonah thought he would disqualify himself thus leaving the task to another. Don't send me. You're going to have to find somebody else, God. But again, and we sang this morning about the sovereignty of God, right? We sang so many, so many things about God's ultimate control over all things. God knew that Jonah would respond in the way that he did. And Jonah's failure to pass that immediate test, I think it proves to be instructive for us. For anyone to think he could outmaneuver God, for anyone to think that they could somehow play God and work some strategy to get around something, well, we've got to understand that, that that is futile thinking, futile. Prophet Isaiah says this, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, the Lord says, higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You think you can get into the mind of God? You think you can figure things out? You think you can peg God? Apart from what he reveals, futile. God's ways, God's plans, God's deeds are, the ultimate, are ultimately the outworking of his limitless wisdom and power. The theological word for that is omnipresent. Sorry, omnipotent. I said omnipresent. Omnipotent. All powerful. There isn't any power that God does not have. There isn't anything that God cannot do. He thought he could thwart God's plan. Foolish thinking. I think most importantly here, is that ultimately Jonah misunderstood God's mercy. 
See, I think in Jonah's mind, again, I'm inferring here, it seems that the Ninevites were not worthy of God's mercy. Perhaps he thought that God's mercy was only for Israel. It's only for the people that he set apart. That only Israel was deserving of God's mercy. Now we have to think about the word mercy. See, if, if mercy is in any way, shape, or form deserving, it completely undermines the very nature of mercy itself. What is mercy? Mercy is a judge's decision to withhold or set aside judgment. You're guilty. I will not judge. I will not hold you. I will not bring the punishment. So again, built into that is the assumption that there is guilt. There's no mercy needed if there's no guilt. Mercy implies guilt. And how does God dole it out? Well, God described his own nature to Moses. Perhaps you recall this in Exodus. He said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Who are you going to be merciful to, Lord? Whoever I want to be merciful to. That is the answer. Mercy is entirely Entirely God's choice. He does not check with us. He does not consult with us. Should I show this one mercy or that one? We don't get to be part of that. God says, I'll have mercy on whomever I choose. God's authority and God's mercy are not limited by what we think. God saw the evil of the Ninevites. He saw it. And we know, we know how the story works out. We know that they do repent. And in his mercy, he chose to warn them. He chose to give them an opportunity to repent. And the Lord chose a man to bring his word to the Ninevites. And as we think about our own lives, as you and I look around the world, if we're really honest with ourselves, we will meet people or know about people from time to time that even if we don't say it out loud, we might think, God, I don't care if you save them or not. In fact, I might even prefer if you don't. That's really harsh. Those thoughts go through our minds. That was such an evil thing. You deserve to be condemned. God, I don't mind if you cast them in the lake of fire. In fact, I think that's a good plan. And you're right. When you do see evil around you, the evil that you see, these people are very much deserving of hell. But don't forget, so are you and so am I. The Bible says all have sinned. All of us have earned death. That's the wage we get for our sin. But if you have believed that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, it is because and, and only because God was merciful to you. He was merciful to show you his son. He was merciful to reveal to you 
the depravity in your own life and your desperate need for something infinitely beyond yourself to solve that problem before God. That you know that at all is God's mercy to you. Well, Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he fled. Jonah fled, this is my second heading, but the Lord sent a storm. Jonah fled, but the Lord sent a storm. Again, a contrasting phrase. A couple of years ago, traveling to Florida, uh, Kathy and I uh, were, were going to visit her brother and sister-in-law. Uh, our flight was canceled, and we had the joy, and I put that in quotes, we had the joy of spending a half a night in the departure uh, terminal of LaGuardia. I don't recommend it. Now, initially, while we were there, it looked like there was no way to get to our destination uh, without a couple days camping out in, in the airport. Now, as it turned out, my brother-in-law rescued us. We got a $120 Uber to, to Newark, and we flew out of there the next day. So it didn't inconvenience us badly, but I know on that very day that so many, because of the storm and that domino effect of, of flights being canceled and so many people to move, it was just a, a disaster. We were fortunate. The storm thwarted our initial plans, and some people took the hit in a much greater way than we did. Storms, both physical and metaphorical, they are catastrophic interruptions to the plans that we make. Storms are catastrophic interruptions to the plans we make. Jonah had a plan. His plan, avoid Nineveh. Get out of this prophetic assignment. But the Lord, in contrast... But the Lord hurled. Now, I like that word. You know, if you just toss something, it's little and insignificant. Toss the ball. But if you hurl something, that's massive. And this is what the Lord did. He hurled something absolutely massive. He hurled a great wind. He hurled a mighty tempest on the sea. We see that in the text. Now, it is but, but the Lord. The text does not say and, as if it was just the unfolding of events. It says, but, indicating that God intentionally acted to counteract Jonah's actions. But the Lord hurled a storm. Jonah had a plan. The Lord had a different one. So the storm wasn't incidental. It was not merely a coincidence here. God intervened specifically to stop Jonah from going to Tarshish. Now, of course, we know the end of the story. But here, if, if we hadn't read on, if we didn't know what was after, we might conclude right now that the Lord was going to take Jonah out. That the storm was somehow now a judgment that would be his demise. And by his response to the storm, that may very well be what Jonah is thinking. We'll get there. It's going to take a while for Jonah to come to his senses, but I want us to pan out, pan out and look at the bigger picture here. We will see that God's plan for the Ninevites and his plan for Jonah himself, that will not be thwarted. But we all get this, right? We think about this, the storms in our lives. I don't think that every storm in our lives is a direct intervention from the Lord, right? 
Life is, is such that bad things happen. These were not the first mariners to face perils at sea, nor would they be the last in the modern era. What comes to mind? Titanic or Edmund Fitzgerald. On land, we know this, there are tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and snowstorms and floods and, and wildfires. Catastrophic things happen. Now, in our story, in the storm, the Lord worked ultimately for Jonah's good and for his own glory, God's own glory. But we're reading it. We're studying it. So it's for our instruction, and God has meant it for us that way. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about storms, both physical and metaphorical, some, we can be sure, are direct consequences of sin and rebellion. An example, obvious example, the man who leaves his wife for another will lament the fact that his relationship with his children is strained. That's a storm of his own making. It was quite predictable, right? But other storms, other trials that we face, they, they may have no apparent connection to any particular sin. No connection. So the one who suffers, suffers. For example, in the Old Testament, Joseph. He was hated by his brothers. He was loathed by them. They hated that his father favored him. They hated him for his dreams. He was sold into slavery by his brothers because of their hatred. He was unjustly treated by the master where he was, that first one. He was falsely accused of, of taking advantage of, of Mrs. Potiphar, of his wife. But the Lord used all that experience to bring him to this place of power in Egypt so that ultimately he would save his entire family from the famine. Not only that, but would ensure the ongoing existence of this group of people that the Lord made a promise to through Abraham, I will greatly multiply you. And he says to them, he says to his brothers, effectively what is a statement of providence Providence is a theological word that describes how God works his ultimate good through human affairs and stuff that happens, whether that stuff is good or evil. This is what he said to his brothers. He said, you meant evil against me, selling him into slavery, hating him. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the end of Genesis now, at other times, God will specifically permit suffering, not as a consequence of sin, but in order to accomplish a greater purpose of your sanctification. If you're a child of God, God will allow suffering, not because of sin necessarily, but in order to, to accomplish something in your life, your sanctification, your growth in faith, your increased trust in the Lord. The Apostle Paul had one such experience. I often go back to this passage because it makes no sense. His suffering, faithful apostle, bringing the gospel to the, to the nations, the known world in his time, planting churches. And he says this, a thorn. Now he had seen this great vision. He was taken up to the third heaven. You can see that in 2 Corinthians. But he tells this story. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He pleaded. 
And I take it that Paul's pleading about that thorn in his flesh was like, God, you've called me to this ministry. You've called me to bring the gospel to these people. This is getting in the way. I, I don't know if I can serve you like you've called me to serve. It's a pleading. This isn't just like, hey, I wouldn't mind if you take this away. No, three times. This is desperate. And he tells, as he tells how it went, but he, the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The storm was his thorn. The suffering was the catastrophe in his life. And God said, it's okay. Know this. My grace is everything you need. Now for Jonah, the storm was corrective. And I just wonder, how many of you here came to trust in Christ because of a storm, a, a crisis of some kind, maybe an enduring thorn in your flesh, the death of a loved one, miscarriage, maybe a failed marriage, a sickness, loss of a job, and you could fill in with whatever your experience is. And maybe some right now are in a storm as we speak. Maybe the plans you made have been set aside. But know this, God is in the storm. His grace is sufficient for you. God is in the storm. His grace is everything you need to deal with that storm. His grace is any, everything you need to deal with that thorn, that crisis, that catastrophe. His grace is everything you need. And it might seem cruel to you, but God is doing a work in you that might never be accomplished apart from that crisis. James writes, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's going to strengthen your faith. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That, and this is the glorious outcome, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? The trial. So, Look to the end to see what God has accomplished and right now, count it joy. And I don't mean, you say, hey, somebody died, it's all great. I'm not talking about that. But there's a transcendent joy that says, even in this suffering, God is working. And I'm gonna rest in that. Because Christ suffered the ultimate for you, you have everything that you truly need for eternal joy and satisfaction. Everything you need. Well, as we get to our last heading here, the Lord hurled a storm, but Jonah slept. He slept. Now, it springs around the corner. Uh, that is according to an apparently prophetic rodent in Puxatani. You've heard about that, right? Now, we know what to expect in the spring. We know what to expect. And again, we're talking about weather here, but it gets extreme, right? We expect extreme weather, and they call this Tornado Alley. Now, I don't know about you, but... When there is severe weather, when the sirens go off, I may go down to the basement, I may stand outside and watch the storm come. 
But one thing I will not do is take a nap. Now, the mariners on the ship, they're, they're hurling their livelihood overboard. They're going to get to the, if they make it alive, they're going to get there with nothing. The trip will be for naught. They're chucking it over, just saying, I don't care. I just want to survive. That's what they're doing. And Jonah decides to take a nap. It's surprising, isn't it? Makes no sense at all, unless, unless he is certain that he's already done for. Maybe that's a possibility. If you know you're going to die, and you've just resigned yourself. I, I, I have in my mind, as I was thinking about this, that touching scene from the movie Titanic. There's that mayhem of people trying to get into the lifeboats and all of the rich people getting advantage. But this, this lady, she's in her room, tucking her children into bed and she's reading them a story as the water rises up around the bed. Resigned to it. But I don't know. Jonah seems defiant here. Jonah's disobedience imperiled people that knew nothing of his mission. Think about this. How often has your own rebellion, your own disobedience brought suffering on others? Now these mariners, they were simply going about their pagan lives doing business as usual until the storm, right? They know nothing about Jonah and his mission. And they were certain that they were going to die, but Jonah slept. We can't, like I said, we can't get inside Jonah's mind now, here's a possibility. Is his nap, this backwards trust, fall into the arms of the Almighty? Is that what this is? I've made my mess. I'm at the mercy of God. Or is this another expression of rebellion? I'll just go to sleep and try to shut out God's voice. But either way, it seems like he's making no effort at all to preserve his own life and the lives of his shipmates. And that may be telling. In the same way, they had no desire for the Ninevites to be saved. He has little concern for these pagan mariners. And even if Jonah is somehow confident that God intends to save him, he is not the least bit concerned that the men on the ship know that because they believe that they're going to die. And I want you to notice what happens next. The pagan mariners shame Jonah into the very thing that he should have done in the beginning. Submit himself to the Lord. They shame him. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. And, and at this point, they're saying, well, maybe our lives are in your hands. Maybe if you just pray, we won't die. Now, they're going to know soon enough that Jonah is the very reason that they're in this peril. And Jonah's, to be sure, he's being quite consistent, but not in a good way. It makes sense. If the Ninevites don't matter to Jonah, why would these Phoenicians be any different? Jonah needed a change of heart, or at least he needed a change of direction. As we move through Jonah, it's hard to tell if he actually has a change of heart. 
He definitely gets a change of direction. But we see this, right? Observing this. Instead of sleeping, Jonah needed to submit. Instead of running, he needed to repent. Now, brothers and sisters of Christ, it's always worth asking the question, what can I learn from this storm? What can I learn from this difficult season of life? Again, the circumstances may be due to sin or maybe not at all. But it's worth asking the question. Ask yourself, are you running or repenting? Are you sleeping or submitting? Now, there's a good and a bad way to sleep. The bad way is to avoid seeking the Lord. Just close your eyes, pretend that God doesn't have anything in this for you. Now, let me speak to you. If, if you're in that season of life where you're running away from God, if you right now are, are, are persisting in some kind of rebellion, and maybe God has sent you the storm, maybe that's the case. Or maybe it's just the circumstances and consequences of living in a world where there's the collective sin of all humanity just makes a general mess of things. But take the storm. Take the challenge. Take the crisis as an opportunity to turn to God. Take it as an opportunity to turn away from your sin and seek his mercy. Look to Jesus. Look to him who faced the greatest suffering that a man would ever suffer. Look to Jesus. He, though innocent, he was regarded as a vile sinner and he was crucified for the sin of all who would put their trust in him. He suffered, the Son of God suffered in his flesh so that by believing, you would not have to be estranged from God for an eternity. Look to him. And this leads us to the right way to sleep, if there is a right way. To sleep in the sense is to, to rest in God. Rest in the fact that he is in control. Resting is trusting. And trusting is obeying what you know from the word of God. And just to be clear here, obeying God is the outworking of our faith in him. We don't obey God to gain favor, but obeying God is the outworking of the fact that you actually trust him. It, it's a worthy test. If you don't have the desire to obey God, then you actually don't believe him. Now, sometimes people get into trouble trying to manage ultimate outcomes. That happens. But you're not in charge of ultimate outcomes when it comes to crises in your life and difficulties and thorns. You're not in charge of ultimate outcomes. I've had so many pastoral conversations where someone deciding to do the right thing looks at the decision and they know Doing the right thing may lead to other kinds of suffering. For example, just give an, an obvious one, and this isn't a conversation I've had, but I just made this up. For example, a young man and young woman, unmarried, and not sure they even want to be, learn that she's pregnant. It's a storm of their own making. It's the built-in consequence of sin. Now, what's the right thing? They know terminating the pregnancy is wrong. They know that. But things will be so much less complicated if they do. 
It's just a pill now. College plans could go on as we thought. Wouldn't have to deal with, with telling parents. And if marriage is not even in the picture, then, wow, being a single mom is really tough. It's the kind of reasons that non-Christians use, right? But sometimes professing believers fall into that same pragmatic moral trap. My counsel has always been, don't look down the road and worry about the consequences. Just do the next right thing. That's all we do. Just do the next right thing. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow. Just do the next right thing. And you do that by looking to Jesus. Well, so wrap this up. Jonah knew the voice of the Lord, but fled. But the Lord sent a storm, but Jonah slept. So take the lesson. Don't run. Repent. Don't sleep, rather submit. See, at the heart of this is we've got to understand what Jonah failed to. He failed to understand God's mercy and the infinitely wonderful surprise expressed in a glorious contrasting phrase or set of phrases we find in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. It goes on. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God. We'll see as we get to the end of Jonah. He will see, but God, what God will do in spite of him, in spite of his opposition, in spite of his pouting, in spite of all of it, what God will do. May we bask, exalt, glory, in the infinite wonder of the mercy and grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, wow, just your mercy. We have nothing before you except for your mercy, except for your grace, and we thank you. We take a lesson from Jonah. He ran away. He didn't seem to understand it. Um, but Father, I pray that we will I pray that we will delight in your mercy. And now, Father, as we uh, gather around the table of the Lord, the demonstration of your ultimate mercy, Father, would you confirm these truths in our minds and in our hearts? For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Amen.